Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Recent events in the media are, once again, raising many questions about child sexual abuse. Among the questions are several general themes. How and why does someone even choose to engage in sex with a child? How do people deny it or turn away from it? What impact does it have on the victims, and how do we go about fixing them? And what can be done legally and psychiatrically to prevent it? Ryan Hall is a forensic psychiatrist in Central Florida, and he has graciously agreed to talk to us about this complex problem. Thank you, sir, for being with us. Thank you for having me. The act of child abuse, child sexual abuse, is so repugnant to so many people, but I thought it would be good to begin by putting it into an accurate perspective. It's more common than people think. Can you give us a little overview of the statistics it's hard to know exactly how many people have what we would call pedophilia, which is a diagnosis of an individual who is interested in prepubescent children or uh, children before the age that they start developing before puberty and developing sexual characteristics. The reason it's hard for us to know is most of the data and studies we have on it are people who have been caught. So people who are in the criminal system, so we don't know how many people out there may have these thoughts or urges but don't actually act on them. And one of the best statistics I've seen was a phone survey done in Canada of individuals between 18 and 27 that found that about 1% of them had either thought about or had actually engaged in an act with a child. In terms of people who are touched, it's estimated that the authorities or medical community only finds out about one out of 20 people who have been actually touched or violated. So we think that there are a lot of silent victims out there that we just don't know about. Again, when you're talking about child sexual abuse, there's a huge range of offenses that can occur. It could be relatively innocuous, and I, I put that in quotes with relatively innocuous, of just kind of a voyeuristic behavior to a much more invasive, such as anal penetration. So these acts can go a large range, which can greatly affect if they're reported, the frequency, the number. And also when you're looking at the statistics, you have to be very careful of making sure you're truly identifying child abuse versus a situation where you've got a 16-year-old boyfriend who may go too far with his 14-year-old or 15-year-old partner. Right, and that's always a problem that we need to clarify because some of it is just the normal activity of boys and girls being together, but the age group gives it a different quality. Yes, and that debate came out with the whole issue of sexting where you had a 17-year-old who took a picture of their breasts and then sent it to another 17-year-old who may have been distributed. Was that child pornography or was that 17-year-olds having bad judgment? Let's talk about some other definitions that the psychiatric world works with. We have multiple labels. We have a label called paraphilia, pedophilia, hepophiles. Can you explain what those are and why we have those definitions? Sure. First of all, a lot of these definitions come from the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the DSM. And as most of us know, this is a manual that's put together by a committee. So over time, as new additions have come out, there's been changes or refinement. We're currently on the DSM-4, but the DSM-5 should be coming out in the next two to three years. And there's talk of about really majorly redefining how these terms are used, what terms are included. So I want people to keep that in mind when they listen to this. If the new DSM-5 is out, there may be changes or new categories. In general, what a paraphilia is, though, 
it is a thought or behavior usually involving a sexual theme that lasts for at least six months. So this isn't a thought. This isn't a brief interest or attraction. This is something that goes on for an extended period of time. And this interest has to lead to either distress in the individual, lead to social problems or occupational problems. So again, people who engage in what may be considered slightly unusual practices, as long as they have willing partners and neither of them are distressed by it, may not be a paraphilia. But if somebody engages in a practice like voyeurism and gets caught and gets arrested and leads to legal difficulty, that may then cross over into a a psychiatric disorder. And a paraphilia can be adult acting with an adult or an, an adult acting with an object, not necessarily a child. Yes, yes. A paraphilia can, can include many different acts such as voyeurism, sadomasochism. There's a type uh, that's known as partialism where people get fixated on a part of the body. So a paraphilia is a very broad umbrella term that many subsets of sexual disorders fall under. And pedophilia is a subset of a paraphilia. So a pedophile is a specific type of paraphilia. And then we even break it up according to age groups if pedophilia versus a hepophile, which most people probably have never heard of the term a hepophile. A hepophile is actually not in the DSM proper. So if somebody was going to court, they would probably use paraphilia not otherwise specified. But many researchers have used this term and write about this term. And this is where it gets a little more nebulous. This is kind of the gray area between somebody who's truly attracted to prepubescent children and somebody who may just have an interest in younger adults. So a hebophile is generally defined as somebody post-puberty but before the age of consent, usually in about the 13 to 16-year-old age range. Some people may say, you know, why is it important to separate that out? Some of the studies have shown that the personality characteristics and ability to respond to treatment is different for people who fall in that 13 to 16-year-old attraction range. It's becoming more nebulous because some of these boundaries are very uncertain. Let's focus on the pedophile because that is what most people think of, although certainly a 14-year-old can be sexually abused. That's not yeah. an issue. Okay. I think it's become a little bit more, again, I used the word repugnant earlier, it becomes hard for people to understand how someone can have a sexual interest in somebody who is prepubescent, who is not even sexually mature. Tell me what the characteristics are, please, of the typical pedophile. That's where we start getting into a bit of a problem. They, um, they don't wear signs. In the old days, when you used to talk about child molesters or pedophiles, you would always think of the image of the individual with the white paneled van and the trench coat who would grab kids off the street. And the reality is, is that's only about 30% of the individuals who actually engage in acts against children. Most pedophiles actually know the child. When you look at the studies we have, about 50% of them are married. They do have the capability to have adult relationships, even though they may not be fully satisfying. Oftentimes, they target children who are vulnerable. So they will look for kids who have single mothers or where the father's absent or where the family may be on financial hard times. They present themselves as a surrogate father figure or as a way to help the mother, and they ingratiate themselves into the family. They come across very friendly. They may be interested and target a child for an extended period of time, so it's not as if these acts occur right away. Many times they will have some personality problems. They may have traits from cluster A or B, 
they may also have a substance issue as well. And some of the studies indicate that about 50 to 60% of people who have a pedophilia diagnosis will also have co-occurring psychiatric conditions. Do women commit child sexual abuse as men do? We're learning more and more about the type of women offenders. And early on in the research here, the notion was that women were not sexual creatures. Therefore, the only time a woman would offend against a child is if she was psychotically ill. But we're seeing and realizing more and more now that there are women offenders, and they've actually started to break them down into five types or subgroups. And the first is usually a young female who you may call the experimenter, who's a little sexually naive herself, and in the role of babysitting will see, molest, or fondle a young boy or a young girl. You will then sometimes have what they call the partner pedophile, where the individual is in a relationship with a male who also has an interest in children, and either they are coerced into it where the male threatens them, or they're a willing partner with the male. And oftentimes when those situations arise, police will usually arrest the man and then have the woman provide evidence and they will get off without criminal charges. So it's been under-recognized for a while. What's dangerous with that group is usually it's actually the woman's own children that's being abused. So you see a lot of familial pedophilia there. And then the one that's been gaining headlines most recently is kind of the teacher-lover phenomenon where you'll have a middle school or high school teacher who's having relationships with her students. And again, in those situations, usually the children are about 13, 14 years old. So you're on the borderline between a true pedophile versus someone that is sexually abusing someone underage, but maybe pubescent. We also tend to think that most of the child abuse incidents occur in what would be a homosexual theme, man having sex with a young boy. Is it heterosexual as well as homosexual? It's very heterosexual, and women are oftentimes the victim at a much greater frequency than males. And there's some question if there's reporting bias there. Parents are much more willing to bring forward their female daughters who have been victimized than male children who have been victimized. There's still almost a stigma if a male child has been victimized. Women are touched, molested, or abused at a higher rate than men, as best we know right now. And it depends on the characteristic of the pedophile. There's generally three types. There's incest pedophilia, where they molest their own family members, and oftentimes those are female victims. You do have your true homosexual pedophile. You have your heterosexual pedophile. And then you have your bisexual pedophile, where they will molest both male and female children. Female children are often the victims of this abuse. I read in one of the articles that actually you wrote one of the statistics that you quoted, rather, in one of the articles that you wrote, that 30% of all rape victims were women under the age of 11. That, that seems astonishing. Yes. Rape is one of the few areas when you look at the crime statistics, and I believe that came out of the National Crime Statistics from 2000, that most offenses such as molestation, voyeurism, fondling, were more frequently against young children, except for rape. And again, 70% of rapes were against adult women, but even with rape, 30% were against children, and that fits in line with the notion that 30% of pedophiles will engage in kind of stranger, grab-off-the-street type attacks. How common are the sex offenses throughout the world? Is the incidence in the United States roughly the same as elsewhere? I've tried to look at the international rates, and again, these may be slightly biased in the sense that you're looking at prison numbers. 
And it's estimated that about one out of 10 prisoners in the United States are incarcerated due to sex-related charges. When you look at other countries, such as France, it's about 20%, United Kingdom's about 10%. Canada, I've heard varying numbers from about one out of four to one out of two people are incarcerated based off of sexual offenses. The problem with using those numbers, though, is we don't know why other people are arrested. So in the United States, we have a lot more people incarcerated for drug charges, which may dilute out the number somewhat. There are definitely cultural differences, though. Frontline on PBS did a special looking at the dancing boys in Afghanistan, and this kind of became a tribal cultural thing that it was okay to have relationships with boys, that it wasn't considered homosexuality, and due to the religious teachings, you weren't supposed to have extramarital affairs with women. But by somehow having these dancing boys and then touching, fondling, engaging in voyeuristic behavior with them was a way for the the tribal men to deal with sexual frustration while at the same time show power and importance. So there are definitely cultural differences and changes. The rates do vary from country to country, but it is a problem everywhere. There is also involved in this a definitional problem, and the problem lies in the fact that sex offender does not always mean pedophile, and pedophile is not always a legal term. Then we see the term child molester popping up at times, and that's a general term in a much larger sense. Do we see any difference in how people act, their, their psychological makeups between the people that we call sex offenders and pedophiles and child molesters, or are all these just issues now of sloppy terminology? Well, I wouldn't say it's sloppy terminology. I think what we're seeing is two worlds colliding. So we have legal terminology, and then we have medical terminology. The two don't always fit together. Fortunately, the DSM acknowledges this in in its process, that there at times can be other terms or other conditions that apply. In general, a child molester is someone who's engaged in an act. And where it becomes problematic is we don't know if they've had the six-month thought or fascination with it that would qualify to be a pedophile or to be a paraphilia. However, a study done by Gene Abel out of Emory found that about 80% of people who were found to be child molesters did eventually meet criteria to be pedophiles. The notion about a sexual predator is a legal term that comes into play more at looking at sentencing and the notion of civil commitment. The term you see used there a lot of mental abnormality. They realize that that term's not in the DSM, but they have defined it so that doctors or psychologists can look at it and try to opine in a legal sense that somebody has a mental abnormality that leads them to a greater likelihood of offending against children. So if it is a mental abnormality, does it rise to the level of calling it, uh, qualifying rather as an insanity or a sufficient impairment that they shouldn't fit into the legal system the way they so commonly do? And that's an area of great debate. The legal side of the realm is that's why they chose the term mental abnormality, because mental abnormality in most cases doesn't allow someone to plead insanity, but at the same time, it was kind of a backdoor way to get people into a treatment setting, often after their prison terms have been completed. When someone is caught, we see that they have reactions such as minimizing the situation, justifying it, denying it. It almost sounds like there's an antisocial or a narcissistic quality to their personality makeups. Your thoughts about that, please. 
there very often is kind of a cluster B narcissism to them, or there could be a very strong rationalization that you can see with people who have dependent personality disorders. They either view the relationship as differently, they see it as reciprocal, protective, or they see it as not being as bad as the rest of society does. So again, I think some of these people are very narcissistic, but some of them truly just don't have insight into what's wrong with what they're doing. Which leads us directly to the whole area of what do we do to prevent it? If we see that they seem to have these antisocial or narcissistic flavors about them, whether it is a mental abnormality or not, at what level do we as a mental health profession, how do we go about preventing it and how do we go about treating it and fixing it once it starts? That's one of the questions that Fred Berlin, who is a well-known and well-published researcher in sexual offenders, says he's always trying to answer. He says his ideal situation is that somebody will come in in their early 20s and say, Doctor, I, I have these thoughts and desires, but I don't want to engage in them. What can you do to help me? The problem is, is people either don't recognize that what their interests are is wrong uh, or harmful to children, as we talked about in one of the previous questions about denial and rationalization, or if they do have that understanding, they still feel entitled or that they should be able to. And there's a whole organization out there called NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, that encourages and is trying to change the laws so that they can engage in these type of behaviors. And why that's important is if people don't have insight or don't want to seek treatment, it's very hard to provide it to them. And also, we're not sure exactly how do you consider this. Is this a choice? Is this a cultural thing? Or is this orientation? And just like most of medicine now has come to the conclusion you can't change a person's orientation, can we really change somebody's desire to be with children? So a lot of kind of the therapy out there now is trying to teach empathy and realization that it's bad, that they shouldn't engage in it. And we're no longer trying to change people away from having the orientation of pedophilia, for lack of a better word. And then there are also the notions of some biological means that can be taken, such as giving certain medicines, which can reduce drive, which can induce some of the comorbid conditions. And usually people engage in paraphilic behaviors at greater frequency when they're under stress or other problems. So it's also very important to treat comorbid conditions. But the biologic treatments are only good if people are willing to take them and continue with them. And many of them, such as hormone therapies or the medicines that block testosterone, have a lot of side effects to them that people may find unpleasant. They sometimes call this chemical castration. Yes. And it can lead to cholesterol changes. It can lead to weight gain. It can lead to problems with sleep apnea. So there are some side effects, and sometimes they can become life-threatening. And it raises, again, the very serious questions of can this be done as an outpatient? If someone sees that they have a problem, I would imagine that most of the time these things don't come to the table, so to speak, until there has been some sort of legal encounter. Yes. And what's interesting is, is in my practice, I've had people come in that have had paraphilias. They're more the garden variety, uh, as we talked about earlier, having an interest in an object or, or having an interest in looking at adult women's breasts. And they say, you know, I don't have too much of a problem with it, but my wife is very concerned with it. Those folks are usually very amenable to trying outpatient treatment and taking medications. When you've got individuals who have a more deviant sexual interest, such as interest in children, oftentimes they're afraid to come in and discuss it because they're worried it's going to be reported to the police or they don't want to give it up, so they don't want to come in and take it. And then when they are in treatment, it's usually post-arrest. 
Now, I want to be careful. There are several people who do engage in treatment after they've been arrested. There are several people who have been treated in an outpatient setting and do well, but there are also several who don't do well. What is the recidivism rate? How successful are these treatments? Or, by the same token, does their interest in pedophilia burn out as they get older? And that's a very important question that psychiatrists and psychologists are often asked to testify or opine about in court cases. And I think a lot of times people get very lost in the nomenclature. So again, when you're looking at it, you got to make sure you're talking about pedophiles and not sexual offenders in general, because a sexual offender could be a rapist or it could be a voyeur against adults, not necessarily against children. There was a very interesting study done by a Canadian researcher named Dickey who was looking at rapists, sadomasochists, and pedophiles and noted that the risk of reoffense did decrease with age but that for pedophiles, the amount of change was less than for the other two groups. His hypothesis was that the other two groups required a lot more physical force and endurance, whereas pedophiles, since 70% of them tend to befriend and groom and coerce people into engaging in these acts, they didn't need the physical strength as much. And there's been cases of 60, 70, or even 80-year-old individuals being arrested for committing current acts of pedophilia. In general, the percentage of recidivism also varies a lot on how you define the question. Are you basing it just off of re-arrest? Are you basing it off of self-report? Are you basing it off of lie detector tests? So it can vary a lot. And the general number I've seen out there is anywhere from about 20 to 30% of pedophiles will reoffend somewhere within a five to a 10 year period of time. And it becomes one of those difficult questions for society because the majority won't. 30% is, means 70% don't, but it, it is a problem. A quick question on a problem that's exploding. Computers and all the computer pornography, this has sometimes been called a gateway to other types of pornography to actually acting out. What are the theories about the impact and the availability of pornography on the Internet? This has been a hotly debated area going back to the first Presidential Council on Pornography, I think, in 1970 or 1972. And the question often becomes is, does looking at these images lead to people accelerating into acting or do looking at these images allow them a release in a way to get rid of sexual tension and frustration and actually make them less dangerous? The problem, though, with the computers is it's no longer just looking at a picture. A lot of these people will also engage in chat rooms, will trade information, and will actually at times swap children. The computers, for some individuals, can definitely become a gateway and lead to worsening of behavior. Some individuals, though, may actually be a little bit safer for having looked at those images, even though those images are still illegal and wrong. And that gets into the other issue of computer-generated, where they've got software now that can take somebody who's 18 or 19 and age regress them versus the actual act of photographing a six-year-old. And in general, for the six-year-old who's photographed, it is harmful for them. So I don't mean to give the impression that it's okay to look at this stuff or there are no victims with child pornography. There definitely are but just the question of what the impact of the computer is. And again, I, I think you have to be careful about making very broad statements there, and you have to look at the individual in front of you at the time. Which makes this such an incredibly complex and important issue for both psychiatry and the legal world to examine and try to figure this out. And I guess for psychiatry to try to figure out as much as we can how to reduce the need for it, the drift into it, and leading 
ultimately to the next question, and I know I've kept you a long time and I appreciate this, but the victims. What do we do to help the victims? How has psychiatry approached this? This is a huge topic. Generally speaking, are we successful? Are we not successful? Does it have to do at what age, how extensive it was? People are interested in the victim. Yes. And oftentimes what you see with the victims is they have trouble forming relationships later in life. And they have trouble knowing what normal, healthy, romantic love and attachment is. They often experience problems with depression. You'll often see a much higher risk of antisocial behavior in women, drug abuse in, in women as well as in men. So some of the answers on how successful we are in treating this is how successful we are in treating those other conditions. Also, the earlier we catch it, the better we do. Now, this may sound a little paradoxical and may rub a few people the wrong way, but I've also seen a lot of people further damaged by receiving the wrong types of treatment or therapy. And I've had several people who were abused come in and say, well, I tried to follow the recommendations of my therapist and it just made things worse because I didn't understand or I thought they were telling me I should go out and be more hypersexual to take control of it. Or So it is a very difficult situation, a situation where we have to be careful not to do more harm sometimes. But in general, the earlier we can intervene, the earlier we can identify true problems, the earlier we cannot create additional problems or concerns, the better. We have to be very careful about doing cookbook treatments uh, for people who've been abused. And again, some of them may have issues that require group therapy, and some people may actually be harmed by having too much therapy. This entire topic is its complex because it reflects in so many ways the human need for our sex drives and the need to touch, to have affection, and it just presents itself differently at different, different age groups. A young child may be told that they're being given something nice and in fact it's very harmful. Ryan Hall is a forensic psychiatrist in Central Florida. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.